This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Truth and Movies. Coming up today, Confessions of a Doubting Pastor with Ethan Hawke in Paul Schrader's First Reformed. No, I have not lost my faith. Spandex-clad family adventures in Pixar's super-powered animated sequel, Incredibles 2. And the picture is outstanding. Thanks. And The Rock is stuck in a tall place in Dwayne Johnson's latest action vehicle, Skyscraper. But I'm just a glorified security guard, so what the hell do I know anyway? Then, in Film Club, we're revisiting one of Paul Schrader's deep cuts, the 90s drama Light Sleeper. If there is no God, then how can we conceive of it? All coming up in this bumper episode of Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So the World Cup may be coming to a close, but the upside is more movies. After three or four weeks of counter-programming, we have more than enough films to chat about this week. And helping me go through them is Hannah Woodhead from Little White Lies. Hello. And Matt Thrift. Hi. How are we doing, chaps? Good. Good, thanks. Yeah. Good. So we have four films in a short to talk about today, so we should crack on. And first up is, appropriately enough, First Reformed. So in First Reformed, Ethan Hawke is Reverend Toller, a pastor of a small church in upstate New York, who is grappling with questions of life and faith in the run-up to his church's 250th anniversary, including concerns brought on by an encounter with a radical environmentalist and his wife. Explosives. She was becoming someone I didn't know. Opportunistic diseases, anarchy, martial law. You will live to see this. You had no idea that he was thinking of... No, I'm so frightened. These kids, they want certainty. You know, don't think, follow. They fall prey to extremism. It's a world without hope. No, I have not lost my faith. Ethan Hawke there, grappling with his faith in First Reform, the latest film from writer-director Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver, among many other screenplays. So, Hannah, um, this is a very dense movie. Uh, what's the best way to sum it up, for those who don't know? God, uh, you're putting me on the spot there, Michael, and... I say that having written a review of this film and having seen this film twice, and I'm still not entirely sure there's like a neat way to package mm-hmm. this for potential audiences. I guess the best way to describe it is how people have been describing it 
since TIFF is it's about this uh, pastor who lives this sort of pious existence in upstate New York and he starts to question everything he knows and everything he believes after encountering this fundamental environmentalist mm-hmm. and his uh, lovely girlfriend who's trying to like, look out for him. Who's Amanda Seyfried, we heard a little bit of her in that clip. Yes, yeah. And it starts pretty bleak and it gets bleaker and <laughs> it doesn't get any better as it goes <laughs> on. It's There's a great bit in the trailer where uh, Ethan Hawke as Reverend Tor is quoting Thomas Merton and he says, I know that nothing can change and there is no hope and that is really what the film is. Just like, no, bleak, just bleak, start to finish. But I loved it. I really loved it. Um, much in the mind of Hereditary from a couple of weeks ago, where, where again, I was like, yeah, it's, it's totally hopeless, but I really enjoyed it. Bleak, but rewarding. Yeah, perhaps. really, really asking the big questions, as I think mm-hmm. Schrader always does. Yeah. Um, and it does feel like this culmination. He's a director who's always kind of grappled with these questions of religion and, mm-hmm. you know, the intersection of kind of religion and society. Mm-hmm. And this feels like, a kind of old man railing at what he believes and what the world believes and he asks a lot of big questions and doesn't necessarily give people the answers which mm-hmm. I think is more rewarding than kind of preaching yeah. he's just exploring some things yeah rewarding for you as well Matt uh, I mean I loved it yeah it's, I mean I think it's really going to be catnip this movie to Schrader fans and mm-hmm. you know it's a uh, nice coincidence that he's just you know the second edition of his of his famous 70s book on transcendental style has just been mm-hmm. been re-released and updated, his Transcendental Boogaloo, where <laughs> um, that book was about the the kind of the great directors, Bresson, Andrea, and Ozu. And, and this is like a greatest hits package of their kind of work and, and Schrader's work to date. I mean, you know, the setup for this movie is lifted directly from, you know, Bergman's Winter Light about mm-hmm. a young couple that come to their preacher. I mean, in that movie... The guy, Max von Sydow, is like terrified of nuclear apocalypse. And that's been changed in this for this ecological fear and disaster, which, again, from Bresson's devil, probably. But it's um, just fantastic. I mean, like you say, really some heavy stuff going on there. It's interesting. In his writing, he's always dealt with these huge questions on a personal mm. level, the idea of the God's lonely man from Taxi Driver onwards. Mm-hmm. He would focus in on these single characters within a social landscape and use them as a centre for discourse. And in yeah. this film, it's a very dense screenplay. There's a central scene where Ethan Hawke and, his, uh, and the environmentalist have this discussion mm-hmm. about how to be a pious you know, Christian in this world. Would you go yeah. out and do godly things or ungodly things in order to further this message? But then there's also, in this film, you mentioned this transcendental style, which is a very formalist approach to cinema. Yeah, and he seems to be really kind of practicing what he preaches, I think, Mm -hmm. more explicitly than anywhere else. I mean, I think he's been reaching for this movie for, and especially the ending of this movie for his his entire career. And, you know, this is shot in that kind of Mm boxed-in academy ratio. I mean, it's all in the rhythm of the cutting, basically, Mm -hmm. I think, this film. I mean, it's, you know, there's, for the first hour, I think the camera moves twice. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a push in on that first conversation and usually the camera move is moving when he meets and starts to get more involved with Amanda Seyfried's character so it's you know this kind of asceticism of the you know of Toller of Ethan Hawke's life and his struggle and it's really kind of matched by the form mm-hmm. all building up to this miraculous cut of just a single cut at the end of the movie without mm. giving anything away you know straight out of Dreyer's or Debt you know might be imagined 
might be a miracle. Yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty extraordinary. It's really, formally well, formally extraordinary, but also the sense that you know Schrader being one of these great American critics who are also filmmakers, mm. he would always still be writing criticism throughout his career whilst making movies. Yeah, but his films were, you know, from American Gigolo and Cat People onwards, often quite heightened in their visual style and sense. And this is so stripped back. Yeah, I mean, way. I think this is more of a piece with mm. Light Sleeper that we're going to talk about yeah. and American Gigolo. I mean, Taxi Driver as well. I mean, there are a few shots that kind of call back to that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Schrader's a very different director than Scorsese. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Scorsese and his kind of arch Catholicism Mm -hmm. versus Schrader's kind of repressed Calvinistic asceticism. It make a really interesting double bill with Scorsese's silence where you have sort of (laughs) this extreme torture as Christianity Uh versus internal struggles. And that's probably a good way to move on to Ethan Hawke's performance. And Hannah, are you an Ethan Hawke fan? I am. uh, Despite his predilection to star in Richard Linklater films, and I'm not Uh, a Linklater fan in the slightest. But um, on a personal level, he just strikes me as kind of a a good guy who like loves film and loves Mm -hmm. being an actor. And doesn't seem to buy into that whole kind of celebrity thing. He mm-hmm. just kind of wants to make movies, which yeah. I respect. But then in this film, I don't know, the past couple of years, I feel like we've we've not really seen a great Ethan Hawke performance. Mm-hmm. Obviously, people liked him in Boyhood, good for them. Um, but <laughs> this blew my mind. I didn't really know he was capable of this. I think it's such a kind of mature and quiet performance. Mm-hmm. But there's this like incredible depth to his... Like physicality as an actor, which I, I I just didn't know this was possible from a man who is also starring in Juliet Naked, which is the new like <laughs> Nick Hornby adaptation. He's he he's got this baffling career, and in in First Reformed, the thing that is remarkable besides like the fact the dialogue is so great from Schrader, but he as a performer, like so much is said in the way he moves and the mm. way he looks at particularly like Amanda Seyfried and. The way he like holds a breath, the way he just doesn't say things as much as he does say things is fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's this um, it is a character study as a film, and I don't really think it could have been made with anyone else. This is why it's so good we get to talk about Light Sleeper as well because I mm-hmm. feel like that for Willem Dafoe does a similar sort of exactly, thing. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I was just mind blown. It's by a it. really terrific performance. I am an Ethan Hawke fan and a Richard Linklater fan, so his performance <laughs> in the three before trilogy yeah. movies and boyhood are so, such key texts but it's easy to forget that he was a child actor starting with explorers in the 80s and then dead poet society yeah. in the early 90s white fang and he was a child actor so very much an actor predicated on a natural personality and charisma mm. but over the years he's worked on that craft he's also something of a renaissance man in the james franco mold he likes to read his french literature and write poetry <laughs> and work on stage and so on but it's interesting uh, hearing Paul Schrader talk about writing this screenplay and halfway through, he was writing with sort of these 1950s, 1960s Carl mm. Theodore Dreyer movies in mind and he thought, thinking of the sort of, sort of young to middle-aged priests that would be cast in these movies, he was thinking of Montgomery Clift in I Confess, mm-hmm. etc. He was thinking, who is the American equivalent now? And in one interview, and it's actually in two ways paired with Ethan Hawke, he was saying, well, I could have gone with Oscar Isaac. <laughs> I could have gone with Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> But then I thought, they're too young, and Ethan Hawke has 10 years on them, and you can see those years, that experience, in mm. his face. And he's become, mm. he was quite a handsome young man, mm-hmm. but now his face is drawn. He's lost a little bit of weight in his face, and you can see the years of experience there. Yeah, I mean, I mean it'd be unfair to talk about where the movie goes, but it definitely goes to some places, mm. and I think it's real testament to what 
orcs doing there that we go with it. I mean, I've spoken to some people that did, perhaps didn't quite go there with it, with where the film goes. It's one you have to give yourself to. It's mm. not one that works so well in trailer form mm-hmm. or necessarily in synopsis form. It's one that if you lock into its rhythms and lock into its sense of performance, but also to the ideas that it grapples with. I mean, that first conversation scene mm-hmm. when the guy comes to him and explains his dilemma, mm-hmm. that winter light scene, is, I mean, it's just, it's just incredible, you know, from the performance of the two of them. Mm-hmm. It's not an especially religious film in the sense of a Passion of the Christ type of movie as well. Schrader talks about going to church every Sunday, as he still does, Mm. as a place to be bored, to be (laughs) with yourself, to be present. He he, he just talks about going to church as if it was meditating. And there is something here about meditation on themes and ideas that strike the modern world. Yeah, I think that it's very clear that Schrader kind of rejects formalised religion. when he was younger, he was going to go to seminary school mm. and become a priest. I can't remember who it was. I think it might have been Pauline, the famous film critic. Oh, Pauline Kael. Yeah. yeah, I think it was her who said to him, no, you're not going to become a preacher, you're going to make films. Yeah. I think it was her that encouraged him to go away and study, actually, study um, cinema. And that comes across that this guy, you know, Schrader's grown up with religion, it's always been there and part of his life, but organised religion is something you can't quite get on board with. Mm-hmm. Certainly not in the same way we kind of see in Scorsese's films, where it does kind of buy into the whole, like, punishing rigmarole of Catholicism as an organised religion. This is more about spirituality mm-hmm. and rejecting the idea that the church can ever be this pure entity, because mm-hmm. it, it can't, and that's the thing that he's confronting one of the things he's confronting, I should say, is the idea that the church is not apolitical. The church can't be apolitical yeah. because it is a business. It has to be a business. It has to make money. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, I think definitely it's fascinating to look at this as his kind of like silence moment. He really wanted to make silence. It's a great interview where he's talking about trying to make silence, which you did, in fact, which Matt did this interview yeah. when Dog Eat Dog came out. and. Oh, right. <laughs> um, there's a lovely quote where Schrader's talking about trying to get the rights to silence from Scorsese and Scorsese oh. saying, no, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. <laughs> and Schrader going, when are you going to make it? I want to make silence. Oh. And um, this does feel like his kind of like his coming home, his right. moment to kind of confront these big ideas. I mean, this is perhaps the most explicitly dealing with religion mm-hmm. or, and with the question of God, I guess, of, of all of his films. But I think that I think you can replace God in all of the others from Taxi Driver and Hardcore and Light Sleeper mm. and American Gigolo. I mean, those are all spiritual. I mean, it's, they're about kind of a search for, for grace or redemption. And, you know, this one just happens to be framed within the context of literally of religion <laughs> itself. Mm. But it's like Bresson as well. I mean, you know, he, Diary of a Country Priest is off the top of my head the only one I can think of that's an explicitly about a priest mm-hmm. but yet all of his other movies Pickpocket or whatever it's it's about yeah they're very spiritual films I think and mm. about this quest for something and about finding that that moment of of redemption at the end which Light Sleeper is entirely I think as yeah. well so I think it's now for the the moment for scores so this is <laughs> In anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect, Hannah, I'd like to come to you first. It was like a four for me in anticipation. Heard really good things out of TIFF and uh, was excited about it. And then five, five, I've seen mm. it, I've seen it twice now and it still got me, still haunts me. Matt? Schrader telling us that he's going to basically make the film of his book <laughs> transcendent. I mean, that <laughs> was like, yeah, catnip for me. So all over it. And fives. Oh, brilliant. I think for me... Yeah, festival hype was more than enough, plus mm-hmm. this, the promise. 
so five. I'm going to say four for enjoyment and in retrospect only because, as I've said before, mm-hmm. I reserve the fives for repeat viewings. I really okay. wish I had a chance to <laughs> check it again. But for me, it's five, four, four, but could be a five on rewatch. So that was First Reformed. Up next, a very different film, an animated film from Pixar, Incredibles 2. Incredibles 2. Director Brad Bird returns to continue the story of Mr. Incredible, Elastigirl, and their superpowered family. The first film, released in 2004, brought superheroes out of hiding, and now two rich siblings have a plan to turn the political tide and make superheroics legal again. Let me ask you something. What is the main reason you were all forced underground? Ignorance. Perception. Take today, for example, with the underminer. Difficult situation. You were faced with a lot of hard decisions. Oh, tell me about it. I can't. Because I didn't see it. Neither did anyone else. So, when you fight bad guys like today, people don't see the fight or what led up to it. They see what politicians tell them to see. They see destruction, and they see you. So, if we want to change people's perceptions about superheroes, we need you to share your perceptions with the world. How do we do that? With cameras. We need you to share your perceptions with the world. How do we do that? We embed tiny cameras like those into your super suits. Wow, so small. And the picture is outstanding. Thanks. Designed them myself. So we've just been talking. This mm. is the 20th Pixar feature, mm-hmm. and they seem to be pumping them out at such a rate now and going back to the well, making sequels to some of their biggest yeah. hits of all time. This has been phenomenally successful in the States, mm-hmm. yeah. the highest grossing animated film of all time, I believe, domestically, okay. due to be internationally. Matt, did we need Incredibles 2? Well, it's funny. I mean, I was just checking with you guys the, the date that the first one came out, and I mean, 2004. So, you know, to think that's what? Four years before Iron Man? Was that 2008? Yeah, so yeah. the same so like, year as Spider-Man 2. Right, so before the whole current mm. kind of cycle of superhero movies. And, yeah, I, you know, 14 years later, we're at, I guess, crisis point or wonderful <laughs> point with whatever, depending on your perspective, where with what Marvel's doing. And it's, you know, I guess there is room for a subversive take on, you know, deconstructing that whole world that, you know, Pixar and seem to mm-hmm. do, be pretty good at. I mean, it's fine. I mean, <laughs> I think Brad Bird's a really good action director. Mm-hmm. There are some fantastic set pieces in this. Mm-hmm. It's bloody long. It's like yeah, a it's good, so, it's it a good two long, hours. Yeah. You know, the, if the first film had some kind of nice ideas about, you know, male midlife crisis, and mm-hmm. then, you know, this one goes into, you know, male anxieties of... Sort of role reversals in the home and at work, and sort of his mm-hmm. kind of anxieties about that, and which is all great, but I just didn't think it really went anywhere particularly subversive or. Yeah, or, it, d- mean, it doesn't really play with the genre in the way that you'd think that a film. Yeah. It really is just a continuation of The Incredibles. I find it interesting that they dropped the the from the title. Uh-huh. Uh, Brad Bird says because, well, the first film in the Terminator franchise is called The Terminator and the sequel's Terminator 2. So why don't we have it as The Incredibles, Incredibles 2? God, which he thinks is, a lot of himself. <laughs> well, he thinks a lot in general, doesn't he? But he is also, for my money, one of the great directors, particularly in animation. I'm absolutely the, Iron, oh, yeah. the Iron Giant yeah. Ratatouille in the first Incredibles. Yeah set his reputation in stone but this one is a direct continuation from the closing seconds of the Mm. previous film and it is almost like the intervening years 
haven't passed yeah. apart from higher resolution, more detail in the animation, etc. Hannah, what do you think? This is the weird thing about this film. The fact it literally starts seconds after the first one finishes. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's Brad Bird or if it's Pixar that want to pretend like nothing's happened in 14 years. But everything has happened, you mm-hmm. know, not even just within the superhero genre, like the world has changed. And mm-hmm. this film for me doesn't feel like the world has changed. Mm. And I can't really get on board with a film that doesn't exist in the current world. It when you say the world the has changed, world. do you mean socially? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the fact this film is dealing with exactly the kind of issues the first one was dealing mm-hmm. with. And there's this casual like sexism mm-hmm. all the way through it that is, I guess they're trying to play it as a joke. The fact that like Bob Parr thinks that he's better at his job than his wife, mm-hmm. but they don't really do anything with that. It's just like... He spends a lot of time whining because he thinks that he should be the one going out to save the world. And he's like, oh, I'm better at it than she is. And she's just like, yes, dear, whatever. You know, Holly Hunter, the kind of like world weary tone (laughs) she has in her voice. But they don't do anything with it. It's really strange to me that they're kind of... The great thing about Pixar films is they always deal with some kind of like wider issue. Mm. And this doesn't feel like it does anything. It's... you know. One question I have though: When is this actually set? Because I was uh-huh. rewatching the first film, and there was there was that bit with the fashion designer lady, yeah. and yeah. she's talking about all the capes being stuck in, you know, being destroyed. And, no capes. And she, yeah, and she kept, you know, it was 1947. This happened 1950 <laughs> something. So is this? So this is, is this, this this is set in an unspecific period, unspecified. However, there are elements of 1950s, 1960s, right. sort of Mad Men era design okay. and style. This one actually has two specific texts in the narrative. Live action TV has The Outer Limits. Okay. It also has Johnny Quest, which right. situates us in the 1960s. They're okay. references. However, I think you're asking questions that we're not supposed to ask. Right. <laughs> I think Brad Bird likes the, the art deco... Colour, it's that kind of like tom- and... Tomorrowland-esque, like, it's yes. the future, but it's also the past. But which, the reason I ask you know? me, maybe that feeds into the, what, what yeah, you're saying about, exactly. about those... About mm-hmm. that kind of, like, housewife yeah. narrative. But you're getting to a point here where the, the film fractures very early on mm. into two separate, almost an A-plot and a B-plot, mm-hmm. where these <laughs> industrialists come to The Incredibles and say, we have a plan, we're going to revolutionise the public perception of superheroes, we're going to use you as, as, as this platform. However, by you, we mean Elastigirl, not Mr. Incredible. Yeah. And there's a tension between the, the married couple where he thinks he should be the one out saving the world, but then she is. And he is therefore saddled with looking after the kids, doing the dad work, looking after Jack, Jack, the baby, mm-hmm. Dash, the sort of, I guess he's six or seven years old, mm-hmm. and then Violet, who is kind of becoming a teenager and got first forays into dating and so mm-hmm. on. And that really takes up such a large chunk of the middle of the film where it flashes back and forth between Elastigirl going on really well choreographed beauty animated mm, um, adventures and sequences that um, we mentioned Spider-Man 2 a second ago there's a sequence that's very similar to one of the key Spider-Man 2 sequences there including a runaway train yes fact, oh yes there, there is which made yeah. me think again there's something a little bit out of time out of step and you watch what Brad this. Bird can do with that sequence compared to what Ron Howard you know did earlier in this solo, you know, yeah. earlier with yeah. the he's such of, a in terms of staging a sequence, Absolutely. it's talented. And there's a sequence right in the middle of the film where it's um, Bob Parr, Mr. Incredible, looking after Jack-Jack, who is a, a, who at the end of the first film it's revealed that he does have superpowers. But at that point in the sequel, only Mr. Incredible knows. And it's Jack-Jack the baby having sort of altercation with a raccoon. That's the best scene. That's <laughs> that's kind the of, best that scene that, like, is like a total non-sequitur. It's like a 15-minute sequence that yeah. could be a short film in yeah. its own right. It's... it's- it's a it's like a masterclass in sort of physical comedy as yeah. well and and pushing the limits of animation and that is the one thing that I will say for this film is like the the animation scenes some of them are like genuinely like just 
really fun to watch. You know, the, the Jack-Jack scene. And there's a scene which kind of caused a bit of a stir um, in the States when the film came out where because of all the strobe lighting where they're having oh, this, yeah. there's this fight sequence which is incredible to watch. And not I've not seen anything like that in an animated film before. Mm-hmm. But the problem I have is that these amazing set pieces don't, like they feel more progressive than the film does. Interesting, and on a craft level, you mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It feels like the, the the animation style is caught up, but the story hasn't. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, there's a nice kind of idea that again doesn't really go anywhere of the villain screen slaver, screen yes. slaver, yes. which yeah. again is a is a pun from the nineties, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of you know the audience watching too much TV and watching you know it's, there's a kind of weird sort of critique of the audience, but again, mm. doesn't you know we're a long way from they live. Here yeah. It's a very wake up sheeple sort of. Yeah. Uh, and Wally does it yeah. better at the yeah. Yeah. Bit, yeah. They say in the film like uh, superheroes buy into your idea that you um, are part of a narrative or something, which mm-hmm. is a really cool idea. It's like oh yeah, um, this is a whole Watchmen thing where we're going like we're going really meta, mm-hmm. and then it, yeah, it just kind of goes, it just fizzles out, mm-hmm. and it just falls back on like oh but the incredibles they're a nice yeah. family and exactly the the first film had even though actually the the run times of the two films are quite similar they're around mm. 2 hours long the first film just had this great unity of theme storytelling mm. design mm. this this idea of superheroes as a concept do they mean do they make human beings obsolete mm-hmm. versus also having this thread about family mm-hmm. do you, if your kids are super powered do you hide that from them do you hide them from danger and peril do you put them in danger and there is, it's such a great mm-hmm. film that weaves that into the spectacle and the peril and the narrative. This film, it fragments it all over the shop. All these ideas and sequences and threads don't really cohere mm-hmm. in the way the first one did. And maybe that's why it's a bit a bit unsatisfactory for me in the end. I think so. Yeah, I do. One thing we should mention, though, is there's a short film before this, as there are before every Pixar film. And this is Bao. Did you see this? I, I did, yeah. yeah. That was uh, quite something. It's, it was like a Frank Henenlotter <laughs> you know, basket case for the first. It was a really fascinating film. It's uh, Domi Shi, who is uh, a Canadian-Chinese mm. uh, animator. This is her first short for Pixar, but also, I believe, the first short for or film at full stop for Pixar mm-hmm. that has been completely directed by a woman, mm-hmm. uh, which is again twenty films in. You yeah. start to ask those questions, right? Why not? Why not <laughs> earlier? This film is so cute and then weird and then incredibly moving. <laughs> It's so good. I could have happily watched a feature that was just this short film. Do you want to try and give it a one-line synopsis? Um, An Asian-American mother trying to come to terms with her son leaving home creates a dumpling as her surrogate son. And that's all I will say. So when I saw this film in Edinburgh... For some reason, they started at 10 minutes before the advertised time, so I missed the beginning of Bow, and I'm very angry about this because I got in there, sat down, and I just had the best time. Mm -hmm. The last sort of... Well, I guess I caught the middle onwards. And it's just so sweet, and I don't think a single word is spoken... No, no, I, I don't no, think so. it's, no. Yeah, it's, it's one of those kind sort of, like of grunting that, and humming mm. and sort of yeah. exactly, yeah. As opposed to that absolutely awful one they had with the singing volcanoes before Inside Lava. Out. <laughs> so bad, so bad. And I think maybe that's what made me enjoy the Incredibles too. Sorry, Incredibles too less. Having seen this really succinct, lovely, weird short film beforehand, and then going into this kind of bombastic, like, acronistic 
superhero movie. Definitely make sure you get there in time to watch Belle because mm-hmm. it is it's really lovely. And it really feels like a completely different point of view creatively, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of life experience, in terms of narrative kind of form and everything. It feels mm-hmm. so different to what the Pixar uh, production line that you expect. Um, but so Brad Bird, we mentioned Tomorrowland. Let's just have one last word on Brad Bird. Tomorrowland was one of those $200 million films that made uh, much less than that at the box office. Oh, but we have a fan right here. So, But some would see this as him atoning for that. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, like, I would look forward to the next Brad Bird movie and I would feel I need that. I wasn't, I don't think I needed another Incredibles movie. Mm-hmm. Is he out of movie jail, Hannah? No, I mean, I just, I just don't really... It's fine. This film is fine. If you are a 10-year-old child, this film is fine. If you are a person who kind of wants something more, maybe I was spoiled by First Reformed. Maybe I've just become really cynical now. Um, But uh, you're saying this as as generally a a Pixar fan or are you generally... As a Pixar, I am a massive Pixar fan. But there's that whole joke about Pixar films that they have... that. Starting with Toy Story, it was like, toys have feelings, (laughs) uh, monsters have feelings, your feelings have feelings. And this film just... No, there was no emotional like anchor to it for me mm-hmm. and I always look for that with a Pixar film mm. Interesting like, looking up what he's got coming next I mean this has been in development for years mm. but this that PG-13 Pixar movie mm. about the San Francisco earthquake which he's yeah. attached to so I mean whether that's going to Going to actually come He's been to talking about that since, I guess, right yeah. before Ratatouille, even mm-hmm. so for a decade. Mm. Shall we give Incredibles to some scores? I will come to you first, Hannah. Um, it's like a four, three, three. It's fine, you yeah. know. It's fine, Matt. Uh, two, <clears throat> three, two, I guess. Or two, two, two. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a very high anticipation of those five because Brad okay. Bird is one of my favourite filmmakers and this, the first film was so great. But yeah, I enjoyed it for mm-hmm. enjoyment, particularly Michael Giacchino's score. I think that when mm-hmm. he's working this mould, his music is incredible. But yes, on retrospect, maybe not as satisfying, as fulfilling as the previous. So three. So five, four, three for Incredibles 2 from me. Up next, though, we've got Dwayne Johnson doing what only he can do. I guess, in Skyscraper. So the third film today is Skyscraper. Dwayne Johnson is a security expert tasked with assessing the infrastructure of a megatall skyscraper in Hong Kong. Unfortunately for him, the building is hijacked by a group of terrorists. But unfortunately for them, The Rock's family is trapped inside the building and he will go to any lengths to save them. Mr. Sawyer, is your family enjoying their stay? Very much so. They're shocked you gave us the entire floor. After your security assessment, what do you think of the building? With all due respect, he's a glorified security guard. Please. The Pearl is the tallest, most advanced building in the world. You've built a vertical city, but you've brought with it every single safety and security challenge that I could think of. We thought this floor was empty. So did I. Not only have you brought them all indoors, but you've trapped them 240 floors in the air. No one really knows what would happen if things go wrong. But I'm just a glorified security guard, so what the hell do I know anyway? A clip from Skyscraper there. This is the third Dwayne Johnson vehicle in about six or seven months after Jumanji and Rampage. Hannah, you loved Rampage, I believe. I did. I will go to bat for Rampage any day of the week. How did Skyscraper do for you? God. Um, (laughs) You know, I saw this at like 3pm on like a Tuesday afternoon and it was just the most like humorless, empty spectacle. Like two hours of this is just 
it's kind of the equivalent of someone just like tapping on your shoulder for two hours like hey 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 pay attention to me and it's like it's just so boring and so redundant and it feels like a film that was made like maybe 10 years ago mm-hmm. by like some Roland Emmerich wannabe like it's just, it's just so yeah. bad I'm genuinely like quite offended at how bad it was like, offended as a film critic, offended as a Dwayne Johnson both, fan. Both, <laughs> you know, in both my facets of my life, you know, I love Dwayne. I think he does what he does remarkably well. I think he's very charismatic. And that's the thing this film has none of. It is not, there is no charm, there is no charisma, there is no, like, wink nudge, like, this premise is silly, but we're going to go with it. it. That was surprising, wasn't it? Because he's an actor who's very good at the arched eyebrow. Yes. In nearly all performances, that's there's that thing. little knowing yeah. thing, and there's very little of that in this movie. It actually feels like a, a film that has a quite a serious sense of <laughs> yeah. sense of self about it. It you feels know, like he, a security advert for Skyscraper Buildings. Exactly. He's, uh, Dwayne Johnson has said on his Instagram that they were inspired by two movies when making this film. It's Die Hard and The Towering Inferno, the, ni- the big 1970s all-star mm. classic. Uh, disaster classic anyway and it's interesting to talk about this after first reformed a very thoughtful and stripped back <laughs> film incredibles 2 a very well animated and choreographed mm-hmm. film and this film which is neither thoughtful nor very well choreographed <laughs> matt yeah i mean there's at the top of this skyscraper they make a big a big point at the beginning of the movie <laughs> of there just being this giant ball this pearl <laughs> That, that they stand it. And for some reason, he goes on and on about his kind of 8K projection system, you know, having clearly not heard of glass. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are these odd things that come out of the ground, like these sort of tombstone projection things that seem to serve no function whatsoever beyond setting up this, you know, big set piece, or not very big set piece, taken from circus and lady well, of shanghai it's a hall of mirrors well yeah which was done last year films. in john wick too yeah. and but what i kind of finally came to the conclusion was that really it was just a metaphor for <laughs> rawson marshall thurber what mm. are names you know total yeah, yeah total regard for spatial coherence <laughs> because all of those reflections go i mean it just has even in its major set piece which if you've seen the trailer you've You've seen the film, you know he does a big jump, and th- I mean there's just no, there's just no sense of space where one thing is in relation to another. You know you have this whole long setup that introduces you to, you know to the skyscraper and where everything is supposed to be, but within moment by moment within the scenes themselves, you know it's completely incoherent. Mm-hmm. It was nice to see Nev Campbell back. She plays his his wife. Plays his yeah. wife, but you know with the dialogue she's given, I mean she's really stuck between the rock and a hard place exactly well it's one of those films where there are many superficial little bits in the narrative and the characterization that you think actually Dwayne Johnson might have been quite flattered like oh I'm playing a guy who lost a leg uh, so that's part of my character he loves his kids and his wife but his wife's a badass and she knows how to speak Chinese and she can hold her own and my character's never he's not picked up a gun in 10 years that's so interesting this character motivation and actually when it plays out in a story means nothing, adds nothing. And you talk about this lack of spatial stakes and awareness. You're having what on paper must sound like quite good stunts. You know, he's he's sure. climbing and shimmying and swinging off the top of skyscrapers. Stuff that we've seen before in Die Hard, stuff that we've seen before in Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, which in those films, well, in Ghost Protocol had literal stakes because Tom Cruise would jump off anything <laughs> but, uh, you know, in, in yeah. real life. jumping off stuff. But in this film, it's just such a CGI... I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing of, wrong with yeah. having seen all... The, I think, you know, if something is... I mean, First Reformed is a, an amalgamation of mm. yeah. six other movies. Yeah. You know, but it's what you do with with it 
even the big jump from the trailer looks so much less impressive in the film than it does in the trailer because <laughs> yeah. they've kind of like in the trailer they make it look like it's there's a bigger gap than there is in the film yeah, exactly. it's quite insulting as a film like it's, it's just... not even a particularly fun bad movie to no, watch it's it really, really isn't not. there's one point where i kind of missed a whole scene because i was cackling to myself uh there's a there's a reprisal of a sort of 90s archetype which is the the saucy female baddie yeah. in this, oh, yeah. who's a chinese kind of gangster who has this amazing flop haircut but she's also like a pistol uh, kind of based baddie so she's always whipping around getting her gun out and every time she does that in every shot her fringe just goes completely across her face so she's just firing blindly with hair across her eyes and looks ridiculous and silly but the film doesn't understand that it's silly and ridiculous yeah. and never at any point leans into it there's also a point where The Rock puts on a pair of reading glasses to, to <laughs> present a PowerPoint presentation and you think this guy I mean he's oddly kind of charmless in this I thought as well yeah. I mean, and this director, even the most basic sort of hero shot moments, he seems to fudge as well. If you think about the early 90s movies where Arnold Schwarzenegger did did that run Mm -hmm. of family action comedies, they they at least uh, acknowledge the ridiculousness of this humongous former Mm -hmm. bodybuilder being in a a kindergarten school or That's why Rampage is good, because Rampage fully buys into this, like, yeah, it's weird that this guy is here. It's weird (laughs) that this guy is like a primate expert. Yeah. yeah, and this film has none of that like knowingness to it. I mean, there was a line he says he's, at one point, doesn't he? He's about to hang out the window. He says, "This is so stupid." Yeah, but yeah. even that just falls completely. Because you all start like going, "Yes, it is. <laughs> Why are we here? Why are we doing this?" Like... It's because the override for a special door is only accessible via swinging around the outside when you're what like ten miles in the sky. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why? Why? <laughs> Who designed a building like that? It's and, yeah. And then there's all the people on the ground as well that are just standing, <laughs> that can somehow mm-hmm. see everything that's going... I, yeah. <laughs> have they set up screens for them well, or are they actually... I can't, they, I can't well, tell. It's, it's product placement for a particular electronics company, in fact, that you see Is there. It? You see there, okay. right, their logo. Because they say, early on in the film, they make a big thing of, oh, we can't get the helicopters close enough because of the heat and the fire. But surely that means they couldn't get drones close enough to see what was happening. So how are they watching this? How is anyone seeing what's going on up there? I didn't... I, I just have so many questions and, like... Not fun questions. Not first reformed deep soul questions. Not deep questions. soul questions. I, I saw another movie this week, which is out next week, called Hotel Artemis, which gave me some uh. big questions, but like fun questions. Like, uh. I need to know everything about this universe in which this film was conceived. This just made me like, why? What about this film? Why? Why did we need this? We didn't need this. It's just, oh, I'm sorry. My, my anger is coming through. I feel like annoyed that I had to sit and watch this film. We should put the nail in the coffin, Hannah. What, <laughs> what scores would you give it? It's like a two to one, like Matt. Three. I mean, I was looking forward to a Friday night with mm-hmm. a pint movie. Um, oh, and one one. I mean, it's just dreadful. I'd say three, two, one, two purely on that scene where I was cackling. I'd say. <laughs> so I think it's quite clear. Don't see skyscraper this weekend. But first performed Incredibles two. <laughs> Maybe a recommendation across the board there for someone. So all's left for us to tackle film club this week, which is a Paul Schrader deep cut called Light Sleeper. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So with First Reformed out in cinemas this week, we thought it would be good to look back at one of the films in Paul Schrader's filmography. This is from 1992. It's Light Sleeper. Willem Dafoe is a drug dealer near in his 40s, facing a life crisis, as his supplier, Susan Sarandon, considers going legit. Where was I? All right, so if there is no God, then how can we conceive of it? You know? I mean, the idea of God presupposes the existence of God. You know, that's the ontological argument. That's Anselm. That's 1,200 or 1,400. I'm not sure. I gotta get going. No, don't leave. Don't. Tour. Stay. Stay. This is a good part. So, if the idea of God is implanted by God, the sensus divinitatis, the sense of the divine, you know, then what is the role of human thought? You know? Not faith. Thought. Everybody wants to talk. It's like a compulsion. My philosophy is, you got nothing to say, don't say it. They figure you can tell a DD anything. Things they would never tell anyone else. Of course, they're stoned to start. Do you think that all of our thoughts are on a pre-recorded tape and planted in our brain at birth? And then they just play? <laughs> I do. Willem Dafoe there. I find this really interesting in these interviews that Paul Schrader is being is mm. giving for First Reformed. Everyone's talking about Taxi Driver, but he does talk about this trilogy of what he calls diary films. Both Taxi Driver, First Reformed, and now Light Sleeper has this central conceit of voiceover by way of a diary, and in this case, literally the main character writing in a journal. And his Men in Rooms films, men in rooms as well, films, yeah. you know, that all seem to resolve themselves in this <laughs> in this final yeah final he, place. Literally, say that First he, Reformed. He would have called Light Sleeper drug dealer to fit in with American Gigolo and Taxi Driver. Yeah. 
just uh, people defined yeah, by their jobs. Absolutely. Trying struggling within the constraints of those jobs. Now, I hadn't seen this film. Had you seen this film before? Huh? I hadn't, no. Mm. I just want to say on the diary thing, he even uses the same brand of diary as... Um, the compositional as notebook. To- yeah, the yeah. compositional notebook. Yeah. which the country priest. Yeah, I kind of really enjoyed that element, mm-hmm. being able to make that. There is like a direct dialogue going on between this film and First Reformed, in my mind. There's even a moment when... Willem Dafoe's talking and I wrote it down because it made me laugh so much. It's his voiceover, so it's his diary entry. He says, if you've got nothing to say, don't say it. And this is exactly what Ernst Toller says in First Reform. He says, it's always smarter to say nothing. Oh. And yeah, I, I like to think that these two characters might have got along, you know, if they'd ever met in the Schroederverse. Well, they're both such inward-looking interior mm. characters. I found this fascinating. We talked about Ethan Hawke's performance being different from maybe what you expect. This is such a different performance from Willem Dafoe. Such a quiet, wounded, passive performance. Yeah. So different from the outsized villainous performances that he would give in many of his other collaborations with Paul Schrader, including Dog Eat Dog, mm-hmm. the film from a couple of years ago. It's so interesting going back and seeing actors before their type yeah. came along and defined them elsewhere. Matt, did you appreciate Willem Dafoe in this film? I think it's a masterpiece. I think mm-hmm. it's this has kind of long been my, I think, my favourite Schrader. Mm-hmm. And um, he's doing kind of similar things to what he did with American Gigolo. But right. this is, you know, I guess this is the sort of, like, the hangover movie to that. You know, you've got that gaudy, glitzy, empty 80s mm-hmm. of American Gigolo and the, and the emptiness that comes out of that. And this is, that world has sort of come to an end that bright LA mm. to be replaced by this kind of twilight, narcotized, you know, crack is coming. You know, he's a drug mm. dealer, but, you know, the streets are awash with crack. It's yeah. becoming the glamorous business is becoming a sort of dirty business. Yeah. I mean, Willem Dafoe, I think, is extraordinary. And he's he's this person that seems to kind of exist between worlds and between spaces and between people. And and he is like Toller in first. I mean, he's he's like a confessor mm-hmm. in a way. You know, it's that, that scene that you heard in the clip where he sits down with David Spade and, <laughs> you know, just basically listens to his, you know, the church of cocaine <laughs> kind of rant. Mm-hmm. I just think it's extraordinary. And the ending, I think, hits better than than any other. Sh- I mean, it's it's lifted directly from Pickpocket, from Bresson's Pickpocket, which the ending of American Gigolo was Mm -hmm. as well. Paul Schrader wrote this great essay years back um, about Ozu and, you know, spoke about him effectively making the same film Mm. over and over again, you know, literally in in some cases. And a lot of directors do that. And, you know, Schrader's another one that's just constantly reassessing and reworking and reaching for these ideas throughout his career. Something fascinating seeing a man of in his 30s, 50s, 60s mm. doing that in the way that he does with these films like Taxi Driver yeah. and Gigolo and Onwards. And in fact, watching Light Sleeper, having seen First Reforms just the day before, I mean, maybe took a little a little something off of the literalness of First Reformed for me mm. compared to this is, I think what he's doing here is much more sort of embedded in it all. First Reformed felt a little bit more I mean, I still loved it, but a little bit more blatant in what it was doing mm-hmm. compared to what's going on here. I always love when we watch these films from whether the 70s, 80s, 90s, looking at some of these details that, in retrospect, are quite telling. One case here is Sam Rockwell in a very yeah. early performance <laughs> as jealous. jealous, wearing an incredible jacket. Yeah. Like this big leather it's like jacket. A beat it jacket. Like, yeah, uh, but it says, like, Germany on the back. <laughs> yeah. and it's a massive German flag. It's, uh, it's really something. And David Spade, as you mm. say. Theological, theological junkie, as he yeah. was credited, <laughs> which is just great. Mm-hmm. That, that would be my DJ name. 
Samrat was only in it for about like maybe five minutes. Right near the beginning as well. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. very small role. But yeah, it was really nice to kind of see this. uh, I'd like to see Sam Rockwell make another Schrader movie. I'm surprised. Has he not? I guess maybe not. Yeah, I'm not sure. So, Matt, in terms of Schrader canon, mm. where do these land? He's going through something of a reassessment. A lot of his earlier films, like Hardcore, are getting re-released with you know, yeah. all sorts of extras on Blu-ray and so on. Do these films... I mean, Light, Sleep- Light Sleepers, I mean, it's on DVD over here, but, I mean, it really needs, uh, you know, a, a good HD remaster. I mean, it's him. I mean, it's him doing the searches again as well. I was just thinking, you know, that sort of wanting to sort of protect their sort of perceived corrupted innocence with mm-hmm. the with the girl here another incredible scene in a in a restaurant or in a cafeteria that's almost very oh, similar yeah. to the one in First Reformed exactly. where you've got that pillar between them. Well, it has this amazing cuts across a 180-degree yeah. angle where, because they're sitting next to a pillar, so when the, the conversation starts, that's... you see them across the table mm-hmm. and then it cuts when the conversation turns to this them being them, yeah. divided by the pillar. It's such it's... easy, such in some ways maybe on the nose, but there's nothing wrong Absolutely. with that. It works so well visually. Great driving scenes as well. I just love those shots of him in the back of the car. And mm. What do we think of uh, Michael Bean's score and original songs? Uh, I think that's one thing that uh, dated the film a little bit for me. <laughs> so apparently Schrader went to... Um, went he, to wanted, he went to Dylan. Yeah, Bob yeah. Dylan. Schrader went, he said he knew him and, yes. and wanted a handful of songs and Dylan says okay you can have a handful of songs but it has to be these ones right. and he was say, you know it was like a cover of Summertime from Gershwin <laughs> it didn't really work so but then Dylan recommended the cause you know Michael yeah, Bean and, yeah. um, and hey, I remember what the song was it was from Empire Burlesque that, that he wanted for the opening right. something burning yeah. I'm not sure, I don't know but that's the Dylan um, song he wanted that's the Dylan yeah. song he wanted and then Michael Bean wrote him another one called right. like, The World Is Burning and mm-hmm. just basically took the, the tenets of those. And I quite like that opening song. Yeah. <laughs> it did date it, but I really enjoyed it. Who doesn't love a moody saxophone, eh? <laughs> I would like to mention Susan Sarandon. I think that oh, this course, is yeah. peak Sarandon around Absolutely. this time. And she is such a sparky performance. Mm. And particularly in that final scene where it's playing with this noirish sense that at some point is Defoe's character going to stand up, going to do the right thing, and there's this tension all the way through. And it's broken almost immediately at this point where Susan Sarandon's the one that steps up and <laughs> disarms the bad guys and, and so on. It's yeah. And only I think only Sarandon has that sense of sort of sensuality and sparkiness for yeah. that time, really. It's just interesting as well, you know, to think that, I mean, it's a very similar movie, as many of them are, to Taxi Driver in a, in a respect, but where that film, you know, is so kind of angry and has so much rage in it, you know, this feels like a sort of exhausted sigh of a movie that, <laughs> you know, him just wanting to get out of the business, the drug dealing business, but not really knowing where to turn and who to turn to. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why that ending works so much for me, that, that just final realisation of grace and salvation that he finally sees in what's been standing in front of him all along. Which, you know, I guess Schrader wrote for that final taxi cab scene with Betsy at the end of Mm -hmm. Taxi Driver as well, which kind of also gives a a similar sort of reading. It's quite a beautiful film. Uh, Would we have a recommendation for anyone who's seen First Reformed, maybe seen Light Sleeper, where to go next for Schrader? I mean, American Gigolo is mm-hmm. a masterpiece, blue collar, hardcore. Yeah. I mean, I think that first run of, you know, Cat People is brilliantly gonzo. It's very it's weird. Good That's one of the ones I've seen. Yeah. And have you got any Schrader films to 
to recommend uh, or would you go away and watch some of these? As a relative trader newcomer, mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to kind of devouring everything. But if someone wants to program a first reformed and uh, silence double bill, I think I think they should definitely do that, even though it would be five hours of the most kind of like brutal <laughs> cinema. You would but, have an, many epiphanies. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you'd come out a changed man or woman, you know. <laughs> I mean, but, if, if Badlands are listening or if, you know, you have your your programming, <laughs> well, missed I mean, what I would give to see a 35mm print oh. of Light Sleeper. My God, yeah. I just, yeah. Now there is a thought. That was the only thing that kind of got me watching it on Amazon because that was one of the few places you can kind of find it. Yeah, it did look a bit. It was a, it was a standard definition it's, rental. It's really and, yeah. crying out for a kind of. That's a really. You know, my something. DVD is pretty crummy as well. Yeah. yeah. So if Indicator or Masters of Cinema or Criterion are listening, yeah, and putting stock in our <laughs> opinions, they should uh, do a Mishima on that. Absolutely. Yeah. So that was Light Sleeper, a recommendation from all of us. Um, you can let us know what you think at the usual avenues at LW Lies on Twitter, uh, lwlies.com slash podcast or truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. What's happening next week, Hannah? Um, next week, oh, I, I, know what's next I week. I'm here next week again. Sorry, everyone, with Elena Lazic. And I think Adam is going to be oh, yeah. on hosting duty since and Michael f- and James are both away. I'm, I, I'm leaving the city because next week is Mamma Mia, here we go again. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> I, I want to be as far away from that as possible. <laughs> no, actually, I've just not seen the other film. Have so you not? Have you not. never seen Mamma Mia? I've managed to avoid it. I was dragged along <laughs> to an ABBA sing-along performance by my parents at a young age, and I think that was enough ABBA for my life. Well, but I'm very excited for That's going to be film of the summer at the British box office, no oh, doubt. Oh, 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be that or Mission Impossible. Those will be the two. I'm coming back for know. that. Yeah, for, to, to, to the city for that, at least. Second film is A Prayer Before Dawn, uh, which is a British movie about uh, set in a Thai prison. Yeah, uh, based on a true story. Based on a true story. Joe Cole starring in that. Sounds very interesting. And Film Club next week. In honour of uh, Mamma Mia 2 featuring the luminous Cher, mm. uh, we are revisiting Moonstruck from 1987, which is an absolute classic. Oscar winning. Mm-hmm. Oscar winning. Yeah. yeah. Are you proposing marriage to me? Yes. All right. You know I was married and that my husband died, but what you don't know is I think he and I had bad luck. What do you mean? Well, we got married at the city hall and I, I think it gave bad luck the whole marriage. I, I don't understand. Right from the start, we didn't do it right, okay? Could you kneel down? On the floor? Yeah, on the floor. This is a good suit. I know that. I helped you pick it out. It came with two pairs of pants. You know, Johnny, it's for luck. I mean, a man proposes marriage to a woman, he should kneel down. Got him on his knees. He's ruining his suit. Is that man praying? I hear Cher is in town in London right now. Oh yeah. Maybe, really? Yeah. Hope she wow. makes her mark. <laughs> Anyway, that just leaves me to say thank you so much to Hannah for joining me this week. Thank you. And Matt, thank you for joining me as well. Thanks. I've been Michael Leader, and this, as always, has been a 7 Digital production. (laughs) 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.